Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. Hi, I'm Robert Hilburn, and you're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. Have a great day. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, diggers. Welcome to another edition of Deeper Digs in Rock. Christian Swain here. I am the rock and roll archaeologist, and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco today. Uh, this week's news. Uh, so if you haven't been paying close attention to the podcast feeds, uh, we begin pulling shows uh, out of our big pipe and giving them their very own feeds. Right now, you can find this show, Deeper Digs in Rock, as a standalone feed for your listening pleasure. And of course, the big daddy, the one that started it all, the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast is now available on its own as well. So if uh, some of you are uh, dedicated to just that show or this one, uh, they're there for you. Of course, the the big pipe uh, with all the shows will always be there for the dedicated digger. All right, that's the headlines. Uh, Finally, and this is the one that matters most to us. If you truly enjoy what we do here, then please tell a friend about Rock and Roll Archaeology, Pantheon Podcasts, find us, share us subscribe, rate, review, all those other good things uh, that spread the word. All right. Thank you. That's uh, that's the housekeeping. So let's meet today's guest. Joy riding to jail as it breaks through the wall. Tin road under die. Head flight. White pride sticking my grave. And the warms me up. Now, some of you may have figured out uh, I, I love my L.A. punk bands. Well, today we have a big one for you. Truly an L.A. supergroup. We are talking Dave Alvin and Bill Bateman from The Blasters, John Doe and DJ Bonebreak from X, Steve Berlin from Los Lobos, even Julie Christensen, who sung with just about anyone considered cool. All uh, very impressive. But really, the band is centered on one guy, the cerebral poet, singer, and author, Chris D. I'm talking about the Flesh Eaters. Today, we sit down with Chris to go over his life in music, literature, and film over the last 40 years. He and the classic 1981 lineup are back with a new album, I Used to Be Pretty, on Yep Rock Records, and they are out on tour. It is a must-see and listen. Chris and his compadres of the band are truly unique. Original L.A. punk is not 
the punk of New York City or London, uh, never was hardcore, uh, but more of a Western attitude born out of rubbing against the corporate rock being shilled out of the record labels of the time. Uh, the Flesh Eaters are an amalgamation of that time, driving rhythms and hard guitars with overlays of ethereal sax and the clattering of marimba puts flesh on them bones. It's extraordinarily vivid music for the ears, uh, as if pulled from a David Lynch movie. So now they are back and in a big way. The album is cool as a corpse on ice. Not only was I lucky enough to spend an hour with the Bella Lugosi of Frontmen, but I was honored with being invited to one of the early shows on the tour. More on that later. But let's get to the man himself. Boys and ghouls, I give you Chris D. of the Flesh Eaters. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Christy. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm fine. Just uh, kind of uh, recovering from the sudden onslaught of intense work. That's yeah, you guys get going ready. on right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Got to get the band we're, we're in uh, fighting shape, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So let's start. Let me ask the first question. Just to tell us a little bit about the new album, I Used to Be Pretty, which is set to be released this week. Okay, so this is the... Uh, I actually haven't done any music since 2004, any recording. And uh, the lineup I've got right now of the Flesh Eaters is from... The classic the 1981 19, right, era, right? The 1981 album, which is the second Flesh Eaters album. And um, there were many other Flesh Eaters albums over the years with different lineups. Uh, some that would be consistent for two or three albums. Um, sometimes it was a new one, every album, uh, sometimes some of the people would carry over. Some of them wouldn't. Yeah. You, I had you, another you are the only consistent member of the, of the flesh eaters. Right. And I had another band for about four years between 84 and the end of 87 with my second wife, Julie Christensen, who, uh, we had a band called, uh, she was a co-lead vocalist, a band called Divine, Divine Horseman. Horseman. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was uh, still a rock band, but, I mean, Flesh Eaters had kind of started out as a kind of weird esoteric punk band with jazz and blues influences, and Divine Horseman was more of a rock band uh, with roots and country roots <laughs> and uh the um but the lyrics were were darker than usual country rock it was modeled more on the kind of uh songs 
you would hear, you know, Amer- American murder ballads from the 1800s, um, the kind of thing that Nick Cave later did. Mm-hmm. Um, it also, uh, you know, they were the kind of dark songs that Porter Wagner might have done, like the cold hard facts of life, that kind of thing. Right. Um, but we, but we, we did them in a rock context and, and Julie had a, uh, or, or has had a, a real background in country stuff. So that was my musical thing for about four years in the middle of the eighties. And, and then when the band and our marriage broke up, I started doing more of the flesh eaters again. And, uh, and then later in the nineties, Julie started singing with me again on some of the Flesh Eaters albums. And she's on this new album on five of the 11 songs. Oh, but, okay. you know, we, so, so it is her uh, that's yeah. doing the backgrounds on uh, uh, the, um, the, the recently released uh, Black Temptation. Yes. Yeah. And uh, this new incarnation or re reincarnation of the 1981 Flesh Eaters, um, has, has played live a few times. We we started in 2006, kind of at the request of Mud Honey, who were doing mm-hmm. a festival in England, mm-hmm. and they got to pick all the bands that were playing with them that day, and they really wanted the 1981 lineup of the Flesh Eaters. Yeah, and let's just remind everybody what that line, yeah. lineup is. It, it's John Doe and DJ Bonebreak from X, Dave Alvin, uh, mm-hmm. excuse me, Dave Alvin and uh, Bill Bateman from the Blasters, uh, and Steve Berlin from Los Lobos, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's that's a bit of an LA uh, and let's say LA uh, super group uh, from uh, those early uh, uh, LA punk scene. Yeah, and you have to remember that in 1981, um, X was starting to become very popular popular locally. The Blasters yeah, yeah. were just starting to champion, have a buzz about them. Ray Manzarek and, 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 and the rock critic uh, Robert Hilburn. Right. And the Blasters were just kind of starting to get a buzz. And Steve Berlin wasn't even playing with Los Lobos yet. He was playing with a lot of other local bands mm-hmm. that did kind of blues rock and um, roots music and uh, even some jazz rock kind of stuff. But he, you know, we weren't as well known and the other guys weren't as well known for their other stuff as they are now. So um, that was kind of the context. We were all just friends who, who got together for that one specific album only. It was always understood that they had their other, stuff that they were going to be busy doing. So that lineup was only together for about six months in 81 and um, didn't play again into 2006. And it was originally just for this one few live honey shows. Show, huh? It was a Senator. Yeah. Mud honey show. Right. Right. Yeah. And we did, we did uh, three uh, warm up shows in, in Southern California before the UK gig with Munhoney. And we had so much fun doing all those shows. We we were going to try and do it again more regularly. And we tried to do it in 2007, 2008. And somebody's schedule always kind of <laughs> threw a monkey wrench. That's always so the problem it, with supergroups. 
Yeah. So it didn't happen. And I was, I had a day job all during that decade between 99, 2009, I was working as a film programmer at the American Cinematheque because that's kind of my other thing. Is, yeah. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah. So, uh, it didn't really come up again into two, uh, early 2014. I found myself unemployed for the first time in 15 years. And, um, I thought, you know, I'm going to go nuts if I'm not doing something creative. So I reached out to those guys and uh, I was pleasantly surprised. Everybody was very enthusiastic to try and do it again. We did five shows in January of 2015. And once again, it was such a gas that we we vowed to do it again even sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got it together and we did eight shows uh, this time last year and halfway during those shows, it was so spectacular. I just said, you know, we've got to get in the studio. We've got to find time in the next couple months, free up a week and just record all the stuff that we haven't recorded before with this lineup and, you know, try and maybe do a couple new songs. We've got three covers that we've never recorded. Um, we're yeah, doing a couple one, songs. One, I think the Green Man Alishi, uh, the old uh, Fleetwood Mac song, is uh, is one of them, right? Right, right. Oh, Cinderella! Oh, you did Cinderella from Sonic. Cinderella by the Sonics, yeah. Uh-huh. And we were we had even done that song as far back as 1981, but we did it after we had recorded that Minute to Pray album, and um, so we didn't get to record it at the time. We just did it live a few times back in '81. So, um, and that was something we started doing again when we started doing the live shows in 2006. So Uh we, you know, that was kind of a natural. And then the other cover, She's Like Heroin to Me by The Gun Club, which was on their first album, Fire of Love, which I I co-produced with Tito LaRue. That was an old LA LA punk band as well, right? Yeah, and and they had a very roots rock kind of... uh, basis as well jeffrey lee paris who and he he took he had many different lineups of the gun club as well and he he really got out there and established a a a big huge reputation in europe especially but he uh unfortunately passed away in i believe it was 94 or 95 and um keith morris who is in the punk band circle jerks was a good friend of Jeffrey's and he and Rob Zabrecki, who another local musician, they had started doing a series of gun club tribute shows, uh, Jeffrey Lee Pierce tribute shows in the late nineties. And they had, they would have a consistent backing band, but they would have a, within a show, they would have like, six or seven guest vocalists doing two or three songs. And I was always asked to be one of the guest vocalists because I had been involved with the first album. And I always got asked to play, to sing. She's like heroin to me. So I I sang that song five or six times in tribute shows between, I don't know, 97 and 2004, 2005. Um, and then when the flesh eaters started doing their reunion stuff with this lineup, um, we it were, the, like other guy, the other guys, 
Yeah, it seemed like a natural. The other guys have been really good friends with Jeffrey as well. So it was a natural, and we've been doing that one live too. So that was another, seemed like a no-brainer to record that. Um, uh, it's always a popular song when we do it live, so. Oh yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Well, let 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 let's because we're 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 hitting a lot of of uh, topics here that all revert back to to the the formation of the band in '77. So let's let's go to the wayback machine and talk a little bit about the beginnings because you know you mentioned you know uh, a lot of these bands that all kind of came out of that first iteration of L.A you know, quote unquote punk, uh, a little more rootsy. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's not the rat-a-tat-tat New York style punk, certainly nothing to do like the remotes. It's not definitely the, uh, very, uh, uh testosterone driven later punk, uh, of LA, um, you know, best, uh, best example. The hardcore of, stuff. That, yeah. The hardcore yeah. stuff that came out in, in, in this, this is, this is, uh, this is, uh, this, this early period 77 that, that follows this basement club called the, called the mask. And in fact, I think, the first uh, gig you guys did was there at that show at that club, right? Yeah, the first uh, Flesh Eater show was uh, was with a different lineup. Uh, Tito Lariva was a guitar player who, when he already had his band The Plugs at the time, mm-hmm. and he went on to do The Crusados and then yeah, yeah, Tito yeah. and the Tito yeah. uh, Tito and the Tarantulas and etc. So. Um, yeah, we played that first show, and we we played. I mean, it was a, a a kind of classic L.A. punk bill at the time. We were playing with the Nuns. Uh, uh, what were the other bands that that night? Uh, the Eyes, which had DJ Bonebreak playing drums in it. Um, he had he had not. He was just about ready to go and play with X. He wasn't playing with them yet. And I don't remember what the other band was that night. Um, oh, that's but okay. anyway. But me, it was the like bands that come out. It was of the first like, show, like Axe, the Blasters, the Germs, the Go Go's, and mm-hmm. this this club was only around for about six months. Yeah, and it you know it reopened in another iteration. Yeah, a, couple uh, a of different few, and then finally yeah, a few blocks away. Right? But it mm-hmm. never it never was that classic subterranean basement club <laughs> right, that it was right, right, right. in the right. beginning. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so that initial L.A. punk scene was very much, I mean, it was inspired by everything from glam, uh, like Bowie and the New York Dolls, to Iggy and the Stooges, uh, to, you know, kind of political, uh, really hard rock like MC5. And then there were the 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 British bands that were coming out in seventy five, seventy six, Sex Pistols, The Damned, yeah. uh, The Clash, bands like that. But bands like the Saints from Australia, those were all the the bands that were popular. And then there were the New York bands. There was like, of course, Patti Smith, uh, who everybody considered punk, uh, yeah. uh, and television. Uh, Richard Hell, uh, uh, the Ramones. Ramones were very popular. Um, and even though there were no bands specifically that's that played in that kind of style, like the Ramones, there were there were a, every band that was playing loved those guys. So, and the the whole hardcore scene really hadn't happened yet. That was still 
a couple later. years. Yeah. yeah. Down the line. Now this um, is this is seventy seven when when the punk explosion or at least the, the great rage against the music establishment, if you want to call it that, and corporate rock or self indulgent musical mm-hmm. forms of the time. Um, so right. so it, yeah, it's a, it's a different sort of feel. And there this this is you know a, 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 a lot of this uh, you know you can pick up from from John Doe and uh, DeSavia's uh, book under a big black sun. Uh, and, right. and where, where he really talks about how, how this was a, a, a very, um, uh, cooperative type of scene, uh, and, and diverse scene, uh, at that. And this is, this is kind of where you kind of come from, right? Yeah. And, and it was a very DIY scene, you know, right. do it yourself. Right. It was not relying on somebody else bigger than you to pluck you out of obscurity. It was you going out, just doing it yourself. It was like, like a lot of, you know, sometimes there's been indie film movements in the motion picture industry. You got a big surge of that in the early 70s from a lot of the new blood of filmmakers like Martin Scorsese and Coppola and uh, various yeah, other very, directors. Famously from American Zotrope, but yes. I, yeah, yeah. I and, and, and you, got a, you got it later in the 90s when... Tarantino uh, and, and that Colt crew kind of comes out of uh, that. Yeah, and then and then uh, once HD video became the norm, uh, it became even easier for a lot of indie filmmakers. So there's always been that kind of DIY spirit in the arts, whether it's um, painting, whether it's music, whether it's film. Yeah. I mean, famous, uh, famously, right. this, this is how the impressionists come about. Uh, you know, they they were not yeah. given access to the salons of Paris in the uh, in the eighteen seventies. Yeah, there were a lot of those 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 art movements. I mean, the surrealists certainly, mm-hmm. uh, symbolist poets, which I'm very influenced by from the late eighteen hundreds in France. A lot of these movements were rebel movements within the art scene of their respective er Mm eras. Yeah, their respective eras. So um, that's just a a, a common thing, I think, among artists down through the centuries. And it's nothing that's particularly unusual about punk rock, I think. Um, And a lot of the kind of naysayers and, you know, the sky is falling people who were down on punk rock at first, I mean, it. I think it was a natural form, just like rock and roll in the 50s was oh, kind of a reaction. and uh, reactions. Uh, yeah, there's the, the backlash to, uh, you know, Elvis and his hips uh, and, and things like that. Yeah, and, you know, there, 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 there were, during the 40s, I mean, there was a lot of great bebop and, and um, big band stuff. But um, by the time the 50s were rolling around, that was becoming less interesting to teenagers. And when people like Elvis and uh, the R&B bands at the time, too, who were starting to come out of obscurity and then later championed by people like the Rolling Stones and even the Beatles, uh, who would cover a lot of black R&B artists material, uh, raising a lot of that music out of obscurity and putting it in front of, um, you know, white audiences that had never heard that music Mm -hmm. before, or 
if they had, it was kind of something that was on the back burner that they, you know, uh, taboo didn't. <laughs> yeah. Something that they didn't know if they had permission to like or not. Right. So, so once uh, these young Rolling Stones really did a huge amount oh, of huge favor for these, folks. you know, yeah. Yeah, you know they, they they were on. I remember they were on Shindig and they done that TV show in I don't know the early '60s, yeah. and they refused to do the show unless they could have Hal and Wolf That's as right. another guest. That's right on the show, mm-hmm. and um, and they did that with some other African American blues artists who really achieved worldwide fame because of. I can people Turner. like the Stones. Uh, you can think of them yeah. opening. Uh, I can uh, Tina uh, Turner. Yeah, yep. opening the Stone Show. How uh, how about Prince at, uh, in 1981 uh, in L.A. Uh, opening for the Stones? So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, so there's always it was something like that. And and so the, the, to to bring it back to L.A. So this DIY scene. Uh, you know, and in, in I think I want to go back just a little bit further in that you you're actually I think you started off as a writer and a journalist first, right? Well, yeah, I, you know, I had come out to L.A. in 1970. I was 17. I moved out from the home and I was going to college at Loyola Marymount University. I was in the film school there. That was what I really wanted to do was be a film director. And I just I couldn't really establish a um, any kind of rapport with any of the, the local Filmmakers, I mean, a lot. If I had gone to UCLA, things might have turned out different. But or I was not able to get. I was <laughs> yeah. not able to get into US, uh, USC or UCLA film schools. Went to Loyola Mar- Marymount, which was a bit at the time a bit more isolated as a film school, smaller uh, institution. And um, I just was never. I never really established friends in that kind of fringe. Uh, the younger filmmakers in the LA industry. But one thing I was starting to do, cause I still, I would, I was, music was always my second thing, but I wasn't classically music, musically client, uh, trained. And uh, I didn't have a lot of hope of, of trying to be in a band. Um, and it wasn't really until the whole punk rock thing came around in 75 76 and i realized you know what people are just going out and doing this they're not waiting for a record company to say say it's okay they're just going out and doing this the record companies notice them fine if they don't they're gonna they're gonna put these records out on their own and i saw people doing it and um i had was also going um to venice poetry workshop which was affiliated with this organization called Beyond Baroque, which is a, a nonprofit arts organization down in Venice. And um, that's where I actually met John Doe, and I actually met Xene. This was before X came together. It was mm-hmm. right when those two guys first met also. So I had known these guys back in late 75, early 76, and we didn't really become friends until they got X together. And I was writing for the Slash magazine, which was a a new publication chronicling the punk scene. And um, I had started writing for them on the in the third issue of their magazine. 
And my day job at the time, I, for about six months, I was a, an English teacher at a private high school in uh, Westchester, which is kind of the one of the suburban neighborhoods down by Los Angeles International Airport. Mm-hmm. And, and also not too far from Loyola Marymount. Yeah, that's so, down there too. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and I was starting to go to the mask. I had heard about the mask from Slash and the people I knew at Slash Magazine. Starting to go to the mask. That's where I saw X. I saw the bags, the dills, the germs, um, the deadbeats, so many other amazing bands in that period. And it was really just inspirational. And I thought, you know, this is a time where I could maybe do a band and I could get away with it despite not having any kind of pedigree or any, you know, it gave me confidence that I could do this. And certainly because there were a lot of bands like X, I mean, X was really renowned, not just for their music, but the high quality of lyrics that John and Xine would write together. Yeah. And that was something that they and I really bonded on because we were on a similar wavelength with our, our lyric writing. And um, so that's, that's kind of how it started for me. And um, I started putting lineups together, um, but I still had irons in the fire with other stuff. You know, I was starting to try and do some acting as well. I was kind of all over the map. I wasn't real focused. Um, although yeah, yeah, I, you I, are, I, you I, are the, uh, the, uh, uh, the assassin in, uh, Kevin, the Kevin Costner film, no way out from, uh, uh right, 80, right. 86, 87, I think, 85, right? 86. 85, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever yeah, that was. Yeah. <laughs> and, and right, right around the same time, Alison Anders, uh, uh, who's now a much uh, better known filmmaker at the time, she and her uh, partners, uh, Kurt Voss, who was her writing directing partner, and um, Dean Lent, who was their cinematographer, um, were starting out, and they were going to do their first feature, Border Radio, and they they came to to me to play the lead in the in the film and because uh, they were fans of the flesh eaters and i think by that time i even had my first lineup of divine horsemen the flesh eaters are were kind of on the back burner at the time and and then through me john doe got involved with the movie also and and then Dave Alvin, and so <laughs> this is very become, by every every everybody uh, runs. Yeah, it was, yeah, and and it was very close knit and and kind of incestuous, and um, but that's where just a lot of this stuff came from, and a lot of other stuff and other affiliations with other people, not just for me, but for those guys, mushroomed out of all that, and 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 came to be and proliferated. So, um, so anyway, that's a little bit of the idea of, of where all this stuff came from originally. Right. So. 
Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the band itself, you know, like we, we, we said at the beginning here with John Doe and DJ Bonebreak from Axe, Dave Alvin, Bill Bateman from the Blasters and Steve Berlind uh, from Los Lobos, all of which, you know, became uh, pretty well known, uh, uh, you know, bands. And I, I hesitate to use the term punk because it's more rootsy, uh, you know, I mean, the Blasters, come on, that's, that's, that's a rockabilly band uh, right there, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, X was while they had the punk label uh you know it was it was more just stripped back rock and roll uh and now you know that you guys put this together and we to to circle back to i used to be pretty um i think what what we were were kind of getting down the road to was that that the most of these songs are not uh, recently recorded the the music itself is is taken from uh from tracks in the past and then you have recently updated them is that right well, uh, some of this stuff, yeah. I mean, the the whole album was n- newly recorded in April, but uh, the, yeah, you're you're right that the there were there's there's several songs on the album that have been recorded before and uh, by other lineups of the Flesh Eaters, and uh, but they were lineups that these guys were not in. Um, there were lineups that came afterwards. And the Miniature Prey lineup was very special at the time in 81 because we were doing, I I had been listening to a lot of indigenous African music like chants, uh, drum uh, music. And uh, I was also listening to a lot of R&B like, uh, but, you know, kind of a rock and roll R&B like Bo Diddley, Link Ray, those guys were big influence on the album. Um, yeah, this is this is the eighty one album. A minute to pray, a second to the eighty one album. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, there were a lot of other blues influences. Yeah. There was some like New Orleans influence for sure, like Doctor John the Night Tripper, like Walk on Gilded Splinters, that kind of that yeah. kind of vibe. Um, there was that whole swamp rock thing, and Jeffrey Lee Pierce, who had become a friend of all of us he was into that kind of style of stuff too. And he was starting to do the gun club around the same time. So um, there was kind of a, a, a little bit of a break off of a couple bands that were started to get interested in that kind of, uh, I don't know, incarnation of rock music and with all its influences from roots in uh, the South and, and, and even as far, you know, as far as ways Africa, I was very, obsessed with trying to directly transpose African rhythms to rock music on, on some of the songs. And, um, and obviously jazz stems from, um, being in, you know, an African American yeah. mm-hmm. tradition. So it and, uh, yeah. yeah, but it had been filtered through a lot of American you know, white traditional music, uh, and it kind of had its own hybrid stage back in the turn of the century in the twenties and the thirties, forties, and had gone through, you know, kind of the white bread versions and the big bands and, um, and then there'd been hardcore jazz and then there'd been free jazz and all kinds of other different incarnations of R&B and jazz. So um, I wanted to get a direct 
local cap route to Africa. And that's what some of the stuff, like there's some songs on there, like So Long, um, the song Divine Horseman, trying to think of another one, Pray, Pray to You Sweat, very influenced by African drum rhythms. And I built up some of the guitar riffs from drum rhythms from African music I was listening to. So that was a big influence on that album. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, later I got more uh, back into some heavy rock music. I wouldn't want to really call it heavy metal, um, maybe heavy metal as t- in terms of some of the bands like uh, Motorhead or somebody, but not the kind of cliche, cartoony, heavy metal like Iron Maiden and Def Leppard and all those guys. Not the, not uh, the, not the hair metal scene, but the the raw yeah. metal, raw metal, right, right. The the the, the kind of gritty Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, Mel- there was even example, a, right. Even before the term punk uh you know was invented, there were bands like well, like even like David Bowie, I mean if you listen to Man Who Sold the World, there is an initial heavy metal sound on there uh you listen to mc5 and the stooges before they were called punk oh yeah that's, nobody that's really just, knew yeah. knew, knew heavy, what to heavy, call heavy, them heavy blues rock uh yeah and they had a tremendous amount of distortion and high volume in their guitars uh much like you know you didn't hear it on the who's album who's albums so much but when you heard like the Who live at Leeds, it was like, whoa! Yeah, yeah. This yeah, is the yeah, same yeah. guys who are doing these kind of really polished, produced albums, like, um, you know, next? Tommy yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was more in that tradition, and, and that is kind of where you know bands like Humble Pie with Steve Marriott, who had come out of a up kind of a pop rock band, the Small Faces, and he formed Humble Pie, which kind of became, I don't want to call them heavy metal because they weren't really heavy metal either. They were still very blues rock based. They kind of got a little closer to heavy metal than Cream or uh, uh, the initial Fleetwood Mac. But um, So there were bands like that uh, that were influential as well. Um and then you got that whole metal scene that morphed a little bit before the punk rock scene did. And so there's a tremendous melting pot of styles that was going on. And you can see some heavy metal influences in some of the other punk bands of the period. Um, oh, yeah. But it was like, you know, metal on methamphetamines or something. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very, so you, much you, higher you, tempos. <laughs> yeah, and uh, there, there's so much kind of uh, cannibalization of each each other's styles and um, picking and choosing. I mean, that's a great thing about that era because there were suddenly, okay, we don't have to play by any rules. We can do whatever we want. And there's a tremendous amount of creativity and original music that came out of that period and and it was very analogous to when free jazz started happening and the jazz movement and um you know intellectual film or music critics may not 
look at it that way. But I, I just as somebody objectively looking at the scene, I see some similarities to how other popular music forms have developed and had their offshoots as far back as, you know, the turn of the 19th into the 20th century. Certainly jazz was the, when it first came out was the punk rock of its, of its era. And that was before even real rock and roll had come had started to happen in the early fifties. So um, there's always been these kind of, off, rebellious offshoots, uh, and and as we were talking, very similar uh, to the in the painting world, in in the arts, and there was certainly that happened with writers. You got the whole beat school of writers in the fifties. You got the people like William Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg and Gregory Corso and uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti. All these people out of that era. Um, you got you even got it in the science fiction writing in the sixties with people like British J.G. Ballard and American Philip K. Dick. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and Philip K. Dick is somebody who really resonated a lot with the punk rock uh, musicians, and I think it's a testament to Philip K. Dick's staying power. I mean, his work was evolved into Blade Runner and then now that long running series on um Man in High Castle yeah. that's on uh, uh whatever it is Netflix or Amazon whatever the sh- originating studio but um so the, there's a lot of that kind of thinking outside the box in every artistic movement um that has moved things along and taken things into new territory. And um, you're always challenging the status quo, the orthodox. And, um, you know, we've retained a lot of that when we've been doing this reunion shows, because we have been doing the Minute to Pray material live. Um, and we, we do have uh, some feelings of that in the new album, but also we go back, into some more kind of traditional rock stuff. We we do the Green Man Alishi, which is uh, the way we do it is is very unusual, I think, because we've got a sax and a marimba in there. Yeah. Which certainly wasn't on the original Peter Green version. And, uh, you know, it or, wasn't or even until we'd Priest already... Version. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say Judas Priest did it, or covered it in yeah. the early 90s. Yeah. And I didn't even know that until we were... Uh, we had already been doing it live when I found out about Judas Priest having done it. So that was something that was a completely unknown to me. I thought, oh, this is something kind of unique that we're doing this. But <laughs> I go, well, Judas Priest did it in the early nineties. Well, in me, fact, me... some of the people in our I, some of the people in our live audience saw Judas Priest wrote the song, and I had to explain to start it. announcing. No, it's Peter Green it was... uh, from uh, Fleetwood Mac, right? Yeah, who had originated Fleetwood Mac? So, um, and it was it was the the and, you know, and a lot of people didn't even know about the pre Buckingham Knicks Fleetwood Mac. You know, the the <laughs> yeah. blue the bl- English blues rock band yeah. 
Yeah, that's yeah. why that's why there's rock and roll archaeology to to remind everybody yes. of all this stuff. Definitely. Hey, let me let me Good ask. Work. I, I I ask uh, a, a lot of our guests, especially those with significant history in in as a professional musician. You know, what what do you think the state of music is today uh, compared to that age of rock and roll? Or, or you know, I mean, we've talked a lot about DIY, and we've talked a little bit about these uh, reactionary art movements to the establishment. Are are we in a period where maybe some Something's going to bust out. I I don't know. I, I I'm not super hopeful. I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, revival of a lot of these forms that were around in the '70s and '80s. I mean, you've got a, kind of a Paisley Underground revival happening right now. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, a couple of bands I produced, um, Dream Syndicate and Green on Red, and then there were other bands from that LA scene like the Bangles um, and Rain Parade and the Long Riders. Oh, um, yeah, that's right. Long Riders. Came out of that, yeah. Long Riders who were, were equally influenced by the uh, which by country of, rock. And which was kind of a psychedelic revival at its, at its time in the 80s. Right, right, right. Right. Yeah, so there uh, there's uh, there's different styles and, and stuff that's melding together still. And there's... Other, you know, new bands that are coming out that are doing uh, stuff. I, to tell you the truth, I am shamefully behind the scenes or behind the times as far as listening to new music. There was a lot of there's a lot of music I hear when I go into restaurants and uh, various other places uh, that to me I call it wimp wimp rock. Um, and I, you know, it sounds like an old man yelling at a cloud or <laughs> get off my for the lawn, kids. You get a <laughs> get off my lawn. But uh, you know, I, I'm not hearing a lot of originality. Um, I think rap started to go along down those lines, um, but it really got stuck in the singing about exclusively about gold chains and sex and money, and there wasn't. You know the bands. You don't. You don't hear a current Chuck D. Well, I, I, you know, I think, I, I think on the hip hop side, there, there, there's, you know, Kendrick Lamar and some others, uh, you know, uh, fit uh, into that. Every, every few years, somebody like that shows up, but it's not like every week. Or You're not every getting month, the NWA uh, or, yeah, yeah, or they're kind of the really angry political. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, rap, hip hop that came out in the '80s, and 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 there was a crossover between uh, to a lesser degree, but you know there was a little bit of a crossover with um, punk rock and and that scene as well. Um, you know, and, and you got people like Ice T and um, Ice Cube and people like that. Um, but anyway, uh, so not I'm not seeing a lot see of a it lot out there. Uh, you don't tell you know you, you're not you're not I, hopeful I don't see for the future, right? Right. Well, uh, I think something will happen eventually. But the problem is, uh, there's been so much homogenization, and it's so hard to escape it because it's so all per- pervasive now. And you've you've got the internet now, which was really just rocketed uh, in terms of uh, its proliferation since the turn of the millennium. And I think the internet has um, 
for all the good things about the internet, there's been a real kind of homogenization and a of culture blending yeah. of cultures mm -hmm. to the point where it's all sounding you, you, kind of you can't discover something new. Uh, yeah, I, I mean I can... there, there is there is definitely stuff happening. I mean, I've heard of a few. I was actually I'm a big fan of flamenco music, and I was looking for some flamenco music recently online, and I found a few bands that are kind of hybrid bands that are doing it. And I, I heard some good stuff. And so there, there are bands out there, but we, we may not necessarily hear from them. They're not the bands that um, are getting promoted. The, the bands that are getting promoted are still the really homogenized, big uh, pop music, you know, the, there's still the Justin Bieber's and, um, you know, even, yeah. you know, if you're going to go, the safe pop you're going to go. And then there's the kind of safe rebellion stuff like Miley Cyrus, who is, is <laughs> totally looked at as being outrageous that how outrageous really is her, is her music. So it, um, but I, I do have a soft spot for somebody like Lady Gaga, who I think is oh hugely tremendously, talented. yeah, tr tremendously talented, and I I am a huge fan of the song "Born This Way." I think it's an incredible song, and I I think it's interesting that what's his name um, Mutt Lang, who did a lot of the ACDC albums, was involved in the production of that song, and um, when you hear "Born This Way." Oh, it's got it's got that big uh, big rock sound uh, to it, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. got a real rock sound, and her phrasing and her singing is very rock, uh, you know, with with the R and B influence, and it, it's very much also where Madonna was was coming from. Um, the thing about I like about Lady Gaga is there's not as much ego involved, and there's a lot more kind of self-deprecating humor involved with Lady Gaga. Madonna, I, who I think is a tremendously talented person, there's a lot of kind uh, of more of a I, I egocentric think, I, personality. I, I think it's a product of the times as well, though. Remember, I mean, she comes out of the yeah. Reaganism years. Uh, so that that's what was being sold uh, culturally, and, and, and she just happened to uh, uh, glom onto that and, uh, you know, spit it back out to the people. Uh, so, you know, yeah. I, I think there, there's something to be said about that. And I think the, the long and short answer from looking at, you know, is, is, is where we're at today is, you know, maybe maybe we're in American uh, empire decline and uh, the music is uh, is basically, you know, art reflects life and life reflect, reflects art. And and that's what we're you know, we're, we're, that's what the mirror showing back at us is uh, is there's maybe maybe nothing new to explore. Therefore, everything is just. Uh, you know, uh, 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 just on on low. It's a it's a you know it's a it's a flat line of of of, of inspiration and creativity uh, as it stands today, which is not the case in some other art forms. I think you know we're in a new golden age of TV and 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 uh, uh, and storytelling in in that way, uh, of which we we touched mm -hmm. on a little bit today. But let's get back to the flesh eaters because I only got a few more minutes with you here, and sure. uh, you know sure. I I, I want to ask you, you know what do you think makes the bands special besides being an LA supergroup? 
Gosh, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, really. I The thing that, that is special to us, and it's very special to me, and it became very clear after this album, especially with the new songs, is that we've got kind of an intuitive chemistry between us. I, I've had this with other lineups, but not to the same degree as with these guys. We're able to kind of coalesce our different ideas and make them fit into this jigsaw puzzle and they transcend they become more than the sum of their parts right. and um there, there's a lot of intu intuitive stuff going on in the room when we're playing when we're practicing when we're re-recording the album um those new songs came together very quickly and dave and i had worked them up in his living room and over only a few days work and, and only each day, a couple hours at a time. So those songs were very new, not just to the rest of the band, but to Dave and I as well. And making those songs happen in the studio on a very short notice and getting them done very quickly, uh, was kind of a revelation to us. And, it's the kind of, I know it's what makes it special to us. And I think that communicates to an audience and a lot of the audience is reacting there. There's a tremendous following for the minute to pray uh, lineup. Mm -hmm. There's a tremendous following for, for X. There's a tremendous following for Dave Alvin because he's had his solo career for quite a number of years. Oh, yeah. He just had an album out with Jimmy Dale Gilmore he has a very much, um, even though I wouldn't really call him Americana, he's kind of fit into that niche. And and Steve and Los, Los Lobos has been with them for a good over 30 years. So, and you, you put all that back together with us and um, you get a lot of people out there, even new fans who are fascinated by that combination. And... There's a lot of people that know my stuff too, and just even separately from these other guys. So it's a it's just a unique thing, and we're very fortunate to have the chemistry that we do, and that that communicates to an audience. And the initial groundswell of interest uh, in this album from the public and and, and the way it's you know, the, the, the pre-sales and everything else that have happened, the the way the dominoes have kind of fallen and it's been so easy to do this and get it out there, which none of us was expecting. It, it's just um, the synchronicity that's happening that is very welcome and it's very, to me, it's cosmic. I mean, if I'm going to get it kind of corny about it, but it's it's... No, the universe Something, is talking uh, to you guys. Uh, yeah, it's like, I, I mean, you know, this is this is when people talk about you know the magic happening. This is this is what they're talking about. It's uh, it's uh, you know the 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 beautiful thing about playing in a band is you know you, you've got these you know four, three, four, five, six, seven, whatever minds that are all melding together uh, at the same time. And you know, a lot of times it it it, it just doesn't quite work. There's just something missing, and then every once in a while there's just some crazy magic 
magic that uh, that occurs. It's almost inexplicable. Yeah. And we've been very lucky because we've had a run of very good fortune in this last year. And, you know, we've had Dave Alvin's manager, Nancy, who's come on board as our manager. And um, we've just had a lot of people join the bandwagon. And Yep Rock has been extremely good to us. Yeah, and, that's, the, that's the, the record company uh, that you guys are on, right? Yes. And they really signed us sight unseen. They had not heard the album yet. And after talking to Dave Alvin and to Nancy and understanding the history of the band and what we were doing, they became very excited just on their own without having heard it. And then when they got to hear it in the early summer, they were like totally blown away and it was beyond their expectations. So, um, so that's very gratifying that, that everything that's come about, um, we thought things were going to go well, but then they went even better than we thought. And that's just been the case down the line so far in the last year. And, and knock on wood, hopefully that, that trend is going to continue. Uh, I mean, the guys are certainly continuing with their own stuff. The rest of the year, it's kind of iffy after March, uh, if we're going to do more live stuff this year, uh, we're, we're certainly, uh, hoping to do another album with Yep Rock. They have an option to do another album. We're certainly going to do more live shows next year. Uh, you know, we, we might pick up a, a weekend or two before the end of the year, uh, towards, you know, fall. Uh, we'll just see, mm-hmm. but X is going to be busy. Dave's going to be busy with his stuff. Lobos is certainly uh, on the road all the time. So we're just going to see how this when schedule you can get shake it, out. When you can get it. But yeah. hey, for the next couple of months, uh, you know, the Flesh Eaters are out on the road, uh, crisscrossing the country, um, starting, uh, I think, uh, Saturday uh, the, uh, the, the, the 19th or the 20th. You see, we're doing um, two. We're doing Phoenix and Tucson on the sixteenth and seventeenth. Oh, it and is. And we're coming back. We're, yeah, we're coming back to Southern California. We're going to do Pappy and Harriet's out in Yucca Valley, Joshua Tree area, uh, which is sold out already. And then the nineteenth, we're doing Echoplex, and we're doing that with Mud Honey. We're actually Mud Honey's playing with us at the Pappy and Harriet show uh, as well. Uh, the next night, the 20th on, you know, we're doing San Francisco and then we're taking a a travel day and then we're doing Portland and Seattle. And then we're off for about three weeks, uh, because the other guys have got stuff going on and, and then we're going to go to new Orleans and, uh, Texas and, um, in February towards, you know, the third week of February, uh, for about a week and a half. And then we got a, a, a two or three weeks off again. And then in late March, we're starting in Chicago, going up through the Midwest and kind of snaking our way down to Washington, D.C. And then Philly and Boston, New York. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're going to cover a lot of ground before the end of March. So. Well, we look forward to uh, seeing you out on the road, Chris. Um, hey, thanks so much for being with us on Deeper Digs and Rock today. Oh, well, thank you. I I appreciate you having me. 
What an incredibly interesting guy. I had a great time digging into the mind of Christy. A lot of fun, and I hope you did as well. So, yeah, I I love the new album. But what really got me, and of course made it all come together, was seeing them live. The show was incredibly powerful. I hate to bring a metaphor up for a second time, but I, I, I really kept thinking I literally was in a David Lynch movie. I could imagine... People like William Burroughs, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, or Philip K. Dick hanging around. And and who knows, uh, Lawrence could have actually been there. I did see Kim Thale of Soundgarden and said hi again. Uh, so if you are looking for something different, if you, if you really enjoy digging deep into rock and roll archaeology, then grab a spade and go see the Flesh Eaters when they come to your town. Again, the new record is called I Used to Be Pretty, 11 songs from this L.A. supergroup. Check it out wherever you get your music. Take a deep listen and tell us what you think. Okay, that's it. I am the rock and roll archaeologist Christian Swain, and I shall catch you all later. Keep up the rockin'. of social injustice Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change and we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day so were the Stones and through the years musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.